Section 33 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Foundation of Constantinople. A.D. 330. By Edward Gibbon. On the eastern part of the site of Constantinople stood the ancient Greek city of Byzantium, said to have been founded in the 7th century B.C. From its situation on the Bosphorus, it enjoyed great advantages as a trading center, and was especially noted for its control of the corn supply. There were also fisheries from which vast wealth was derived. After the Battle of Plataea, B.C. 479, which put an end to the Persian invasion of Greece, Byzantium was recolonized. In the later Grecian wars it was many times taken, being besieged in the year B.C. 339 by Philip of Macedon and relieved by Phocion. Soon after this it formed an alliance with Alexander the Great, but the city was thenceforth continually harassed by enemies and never regained its former prosperity. About the year B.C. 277, it was menaced by the Gauls, to whom the Byzantines were forced to pay tribute. When those invaders had been driven back by the Thracian tribes, these in turn exacted from Byzantium-like payments, and to increase its revenues, the city taxed all vessels entering the Euxine. This led B.C. 220, to war with Rhodes, instigated by aggrieved merchants in different parts of the world, the result of which was that the Byzantines levied no more tribute on ships. By treaty, B.C. 148, Byzantium entered into relations with Rome, then engaged in eastern wars, and from that time the Byzantines sought Roman favor and long maintained an alliance with the empire. After this, little is told of Byzantium, until the war of the emperor Septimius Severus, with his great rival Niger, governor of Syria. Byzantium adhered to the cause of Niger. Confident in their future if he should be victorious, the Byzantines indulged dreams of becoming the head of an eastern empire. Their city was strongly fortified. They had a powerful fleet, and for three years they held out against the Roman besiegers. Then, after untold sufferings and slaughter, yielded under the distress of famine. At last they were reduced to chewing leather hides soaked in water and finally to the horrible extremity in which the weak become literally the prey of the strong. The Romans destroyed the magnificent city walls, and deprived Byzantium of municipal and political liberties, 
The fall of Byzantium was accomplished in AD 194-196, and when next its site became the scene of historical events, a wholly new order of things had been inaugurated in the world. After his successful war with his colleague Licinius, sole ruler of the East, Constantine had put him to death in AD 325. Constantine then became Sol Augustus, and in 330 he transferred the capital of the empire from Rome to Byzantium, which was henceforth called Constantinople. The unfortunate Licinius was the last rival who opposed the greatness and the last captive who adorned the triumph of Constantine. After a tranquil and prosperous reign, the conqueror bequeathed to his family the inheritance of the Roman Empire, a new capital, a new policy, and a new religion. And the innovations which he established have been embraced and consecrated by succeeding generations. After the defeat and abdication of Licinius, his victorious rival proceeded to lay the foundation of a city destined to reign in future times, the mistress of the East, and to survive the empire and religion of Constantine. The motives, whether of pride or of policy, which first induced Diocletian to withdraw himself from the ancient seat of government, had acquired additional weight by the example of his successors in the habits of forty years. Rome was insensibly confounded with the dependent kingdoms, which had once acknowledged her supremacy, and the country of the Caesars was viewed with cold indifference by a martial prince, born in the neighborhood of the Danube, educated in the courts and armies of Asia and invested with the purple by the legions of Britain. The Italians, who had received Constantine as their deliverer, submissively obeyed the edicts, which he sometimes condescended to address to the Senate and the people of Rome, but they were seldom honored with the presence of their new sovereign. During the vigor of his age, Constantine, according to the various exigencies of peace and war, moved with slow dignity or with active diligence along the frontiers of his extensive dominions and was always prepared to take the field either against a foreign or a domestic enemy but as he gradually reached the summit of prosperity and the decline of life he began to meditate the design of fixing in a more permanent station the strength as well as majesty of the throne. In the choice of an advantageous situation, he preferred the confines of Europe and Asia. To curb with a powerful arm the barbarians who dwelt between the Danube and the Tanais, to watch with an eye of jealousy the conduct of the Persian monarch, who indignantly supported the yoke of an ignominious treaty. With these views, Diocletian had selected and embellished the residence of Nicomedia. But the memory of Diocletian was justly abhorred by the protector of the church. 
and Constantine was not insensible to the ambition of founding a city which might perpetuate the glory of his own name. During the late operations of the war against Licinius, he had sufficient opportunity to contemplate, both as a soldier and as a statesman, the incomparable position of Byzantium, and to observe how strongly it was guarded by nature against a hostile attack, while it was accessible on every side to the benefits of commercial intercourse. Many ages before Constantine, one of the most judicious historians of antiquity had described the advantages of a situation from whence a feeble colony of Greeks derived the command of the sea and the honors of a flourishing and independent republic. The harbor of Constantinople, which may be considered as an arm of the Bosphorus, obtained in a very remote period the denomination of the Golden Horn. The curve which it describes might be compared to the horn of a stag, or, as it should seem, with more propriety, to that of an ox. The epithet of Golden was expressive of the riches which every wind wafted from the most distant countries into the secure and capacious port of Constantinople. The river Lycus, formed by the conflux of two little streams, pours into the harbor a perpetual supply of fresh water, which serves to cleanse the bottom and to invite the periodical shoals of fish to seek their retreat in that convenient recess. As the vicissitudes of tides are scarcely felt in those seas, the constant depth of the harbor allows goods to be landed on the quays without the assistance of boats. And it has been observed that in many places the largest vessels may rest their prows against the houses, while their sterns are floating in the water. From the mouth of the Lycus to that of the harbor, this arm of the Bosphorus is more than seven miles in length. The entrance is about five hundred yards broad and a strong chain could be occasionally thrown across it to guard the port and the city from the attack of a hostile navy. The geographers who, with the most skillful accuracy, have surveyed the form and extent of the Hellespont, assign about sixty miles for the winding course and about three miles for the ordinary breadth of those celebrated straits but the narrowest part of the channel is found to the northward of the old Turkish castles, between the cities of Cestus and Abydus. It was here that the adventurous Leander braved the passage of the flood for the possession of his mistress. It is here likewise, in a place where the distance between the opposite banks cannot exceed five hundred paces, that Xerxes imposed a stupendous bridge of boats for the purpose of transporting into Europe a hundred and seventy myriads of barbarians. A sea contracted with such narrow limits may seem but ill to deserve the singular epithet of broad, which Homer, as well as Orpheus, has frequently bestowed on the Hellespont. But our ideas of greatness 
are of a relative nature. The traveller, and especially the poet, who sailed along the Hellespont, who pursued the windings of the stream, and contemplated the rural scenery, which appeared on every side to terminate the prospect, insensibly lost the remembrance of the sea, and his fancy painted those celebrated straits with all the attributes of a mighty river flowing with a swift current in the midst of a woody and inland country, and at length through a wide mouth discharging itself into the Aegean or archipelago. Ancient Troy, seated on an eminence at the foot of Mount Ida, overlooked the mouth of the Hellespont, which scarcely received an accession of waters from the tribute of those immortal rivulets, the Simois and Scamander. The Grecian camp had stretched twelve miles along the shore, from the Sigean to the Retean promontory, and the flanks of the army were guarded by the bravest chiefs, who fought under the banners of Agamemnon. The first of those promontories was occupied by Achilles, with his invincible Myrmidons, and the dauntless Ajax pitched his tents on the other. After Ajax had fallen a sacrifice to his disappointed pride and to the ingratitude of the Greeks, his sepulchre was erected on the ground where he had defended the navy against the rage of Jove and of Hector, and the citizens of the rising town of Reteum celebrated his memory with divine honors. Before Constantine gave a just preference to the situation of Byzantium, he had conceived the design of erecting the seat of empire on this celebrated spot, from whence the Romans derived their fabulous origin. The extensive plain which lies below ancient Troy, toward the Retan promontory and the tomb of Ajax, was first chosen for his new capital. And though the undertaking was soon relinquished, the stately remains of unfinished walls and towers attracted the notice of all who sailed through the straits of the Hellespont. We are at present qualified to view the advantageous position of Constantinople, which appears to have been formed by nature for the center and capital of a great monarchy. Situated in the 41st degree of latitude, the imperial city commanded from her seven hills the opposite shores of Europe and Asia, the climate was healthy and temperate, the soil fertile, the harbor secure and capacious, and the approach on the side of the continent was of small extent and easy defense. The Bosphorus and the Hellespont may be considered as the two gates of Constantinople, and the prince who possessed these important passages could always shut them against a naval enemy and open them to the fleets of commerce. The preservation of the eastern provinces may, in some degree, ascribe to the policy of Constantine as the barbarians of the Euxine, who, in the preceding age, had poured their armaments into the heart of the Mediterranean, soon desisted from the exercise of piracy, and despaired of forcing this insurmountable barrier. 
when the gates of the Hellespont and Bosphorus were shut, the capital still enjoyed within their spacious enclosure every production which could supply the wants or gratify the luxury of its numerous inhabitants. The seacoasts of Thrace and Bithynia, which languish under the weight of Turkish oppression, still exhibit a rich prospect of vineyards, of gardens, and of plentiful harvests. And the Propontis has ever been renowned for an inexhaustible store of the most exquisite fish that are taken in their stated seasons without skill and almost without labor. But when the passages of the straits were thrown open for trade, they alternately admitted the natural and artificial riches of the north and south, of the Euxine, and of the Mediterranean. Whatever rude commodities were collected in the forests of Germany and Scythia, as far as the sources of the Tanais and the Borysthenes, whatever was manufactured by the skill of Europe or Asia, the corn of Egypt and the gems and spices of the farthest India, were brought by the varying winds into the port of Constantinople, which for many ages attracted the commerce of the ancient world. The prospect of beauty, of safety, and of wealth united in a single spot was sufficient to justify the choice of Constantine. But a some decent mixture of prodigy and fable has, in every age, been supposed to reflect a becoming majesty on the origin of great cities. The emperor was desirous of ascribing his resolution, not so much to the uncertain counsel of human policy, as to the infallible and eternal decrees of divine wisdom. In one of his laws he has been careful to instruct posterity that, in obedience to the commands of God, he laid the everlasting foundations of Constantinople. And though he has not condescended to relate in what manner the celestial inspiration was communicated to his mind, the defect of his modest silence has been liberally supplied by the ingenuity of succeeding writers who describe the nocturnal vision which appeared to the fancy of Constantine as he slept within the walls of Byzantium. The tutelar genius of the city, a venerable matron sinking under the weight of years and infirmities, was suddenly transformed into a blooming maid, whom his own hands adorned with all the symbols of imperial greatness. The monarch awoke, interpreted the auspicious omen, and obeyed without hesitation the will of heaven, the day which gave birth to a city or colony was celebrated by the Romans with such ceremonies as had been ordained by a generous superstition. And though Constantine might omit some rites which savored too strongly of their pagan origin, yet he was anxious to leave a deep impression of hope and respect on the minds of the spectators. On foot, with a lance in his hand, the emperor himself led the solemn procession and directed the line which was traced as the boundary of the destined capital, till the growing circumference was observed with astonishment by the assistants, 
who at length ventured to observe that he had already exceeded the most ample measure of a great city. I shall still advance, replied Constantine, till he, the invisible guide who marches before me, thinks proper to stop. Without presuming to investigate the nature or motives of this extraordinary conductor, we shall content ourselves with a more humble task of describing the extent and limits of Constantinople. In the actual state of the city, the palace and gardens of the Seraglio occupy the eastern promontory, the first of the seven hills, and cover about 150 acres of our own measure. The seat of a Turkish jealousy and despotism is erected on the foundations of a Grecian Republic, but it may be supposed that the Byzantines were tempted by the conveniency of the harbor to extend their habitations on that side beyond the modern limits of the Seraglio. The new walls of Constantine stretched from the port to the Propontis across the enlarged breadth of the triangle at a distance of fifteen stadia from the ancient fortification, and with the city of Byzantium they enclosed five of the seven hills, which, to the eyes of those who approach Constantinople, appear to rise above each other in beautiful order. About a century after the death of the founder, the new buildings, extending on one side up the harbor, and on the other along the Propontis, already covered the narrow ridge of the sixth and the broad summit of the seventh hill. The necessity of protecting those suburbs from the incessant inroads of the barbarians engaged the younger Theodosius to surround his capital with an adequate and permanent enclosure of walls. From the eastern promontory to the Golden Gate, the extreme length of Constantinople was about three Roman miles, the circumference measured between ten and eleven, and the surface might be computed as equal to about two thousand acres. It is impossible to justify the vain and credulous exaggerations of modern travelers, who have sometimes stretched the limits of Constantinople, over the adjacent villages of the European and even of the Asiatic coast. But the suburbs of Pera and Galata, though situated beyond the harbor, may deserve to be considered as a part of the city. And this addition may perhaps authorize the measure of a Byzantine historian who assigns 16 Greek, about 14 Roman, miles for the circumference of his native city. Such an extent may seem not unworthy of an imperial residence. Yet Constantinople must yield to Babylon and Thebes, to ancient Rome, to London, and even to Paris. The master of the Roman world who aspired to erect an eternal monument of the glories of his reign, could employ in the prosecution of that great work the wealth, the labor, 
and all that yet remained of the genius of obedient millions some estimate may be formed of the expense bestowed with imperial liberality on the foundation of constantinople by the allowance of about two million five hundred thousand pounds for the construction of the walls the porticos and the aqueducts the forests that overshadowed the shores of the euxine and the celebrated quarries of white marble in the little island of proconesus supplied an inexhaustible stock of materials ready to be conveyed by the convenience of a short water carriage to the harbour of byzantium a multitude of labourers and artificers urged the conclusion of the work with incessant toil but the impatience of constantine soon discovered that in the decline of the arts the skill as well as numbers of his architects bore a very unequal proportion to the greatness of his designs the magistrates of the most distant provinces were therefore directed to institute schools to appoint professors and by the hopes of rewards and privileges to engage in the study and practice of architecture a sufficient number of ingenious youths who had received a liberal education the buildings of the new city were executed by such artificers as the reign of constantine could afford but they were decorated by the hands of the most celebrated masters of the age of pericles and alexander to revive the genius of phidias and lysippus surpassed indeed the power of a roman emperor but the immortal productions which they had bequeathed to posterity were exposed without defence to the rapacious vanity of a despot by his commands the cities of greece and asia were despoiled of their most valuable ornaments the trophies of memorable wars the objects of religious veneration the most finished statues of the gods and heroes of the sages and poets of ancient times contributed to the splendid triumph of constantinople and gave occasion to the remark of the historian sedernus who observes with some enthusiasm that nothing seemed wanting except the souls of the illustrious men whom those admirable monuments were intended to represent but it is not in the city of constantine nor in the declining period of an empire when the human mind was depressed by civil and religious slavery that we should seek for the souls of homer and of demosthenes during the siege of byzantium the conqueror had pitched his tent on the commanding eminence of the second hill to perpetuate the memory of his success he chose the same advantageous position for the principal forum which appears to have been of a circular or rather elliptical form the two opposite entrances formed triumphal arches the porticos which enclosed it on every side 
were filled with statues, and the center of the forum was occupied by a lofty column, of which a mutilated fragment is now degraded by the appellation of the burnt pillar. The column was erected on a pedestal of white marble twenty feet high, and was composed of ten pieces of porphyry, each of which measured about ten feet in height, and about thirty-three in circumference. On the summit of the pillar, above one hundred and twenty feet from the ground, stood the colossal statue of Apollo. It was of bronze, had been transported either from Athens or from a town in Phrygia, and was supposed to be the work of Phidias. The artist had represented the god of day, or, as it was afterward interpreted, the emperor Constantine himself, with a scepter in his right hand, the globe of the world in his left, and a crown of rays glittering on his head. The circus, or hippodrome, was a stately building about four hundred paces in length and one hundred in breadth. The space between the two metae, or goals, was filled with statues and obelisks, and we may still remark a very singular fragment of antiquity, the bodies of three serpents twisted into one pillar of brass. Their triple heads had once supported the golden tripod, which, after the defeat of Xerxes, was consecrated in the temple of Delphi by the victorious Greeks. The beauty of the Hippodrome has been long since defaced by the rude hands of the Turkish conquerors, but under the similar appellation of Atmidan, it still serves as a place of exercise for their horses. From the throne, whence the emperor viewed the Circassian games, a winding staircase descended to the palace. A magnificent edifice, which scarcely yielded to the residence of Rome itself, and which, together with the dependent courts, gardens and porticos, covered a considerable extent of ground, upon the banks of the Propontis, between the Hippodrome and the Church of St. Sophia. We might likewise celebrate the baths, which still retained the name of Zeuxippus, after they had been enriched by the munificence of Constantine with lofty columns, various marbles and above threescore statues of bronze. But we should deviate from the design of this history if we attempted minutely to describe the different buildings or quarters of the city. It may be sufficient to observe that whatever could adorn the dignity of a great capital, or contribute to the benefit or pleasure of its numerous inhabitants, was contained within the walls of Constantinople. A particular description, composed about a century after its foundation, enumerates a capital, or school of learning, a circus, two theatres, eight public and 153 private baths, 52 porticos, five granaries, eight aqueducts or reservoirs of water, 
four spacious halls for the meetings of the Senate or Courts of Justice, fourteen churches, fourteen palaces, and four thousand three hundred and eighty-eight houses, which, for their size or beauty, deserved to be distinguished from the multitude of plebeian habitations. The populousness of his favored city was the next and most serious object of the attention of its founder. In the dark ages which succeeded the translation of the empire, the remote and the immediate consequences of that memorable event were strangely confounded by the vanity of the Greeks and the credulity of the Latins. It was asserted and believed that all the noble families of Rome, the Senate, and the Equestrian Order, with their innumerable attendants, had followed their emperor to the banks of the Propontis, that a spurious race of strangers and plebeians was left to possess the solitude of the ancient capital, and that the lands of Italy, long since converted into gardens, were at once deprived of cultivation and inhabitants. Since the growth of Constantinople cannot be ascribed to the general increase of mankind and of industry, it must be admitted that this artificial colony was raised at the expense of the ancient cities of the empire. Many opulent senators of Rome and of the eastern provinces were probably invited by Constantine to adopt for their country the fortunate spot which he had chosen for his own residence. The invitations of a master are scarcely to be distinguished from commands, and the liberality of the emperor obtained a ready and cheerful obedience. He bestowed on his favorites the palaces which he had built in the several quarters of the city assigned them lands and pensions for the support of their dignity, and alienated the demesnes of Pontus and Asia to grant hereditary estates by the easy tenure of maintaining a house in the capital. But these encouragements and obligations soon became superfluous and were gradually abolished. Wherever the seat of government is fixed, a considerable part of the public revenue will be expended by the prince himself, by his ministers, by the officers of justice, and by the domestics of the palace. The most wealthy of the provincials will be attracted by the powerful motives of interest and duty, of amusement and curiosity. A third and more numerous class of inhabitants will insensibly be formed, of servants, of artificers, and of merchants, who derive their subsistence from their own labor, and from the wants or luxury of the superior ranks. In less than a century Constantinople disputed with Rome itself the preeminence of riches and numbers. New piles of buildings, crowded together with too little regard to health or convenience, scarcely allowed the intervals of narrow streets 
for the perpetual throng of men, of horses, and of carriages. The allotted space of ground was insufficient to contain the increasing people, and the additional foundations which on either side were advanced into the sea might alone have composed a very considerable city. The frequent and regular distributions of wine and oil, of corn or bread, of money or provisions, had almost exempted the poorer citizens of Rome from the necessity of labor. The magnificence of the first Caesars was in some measure imitated by the founder of Constantinople. But his liberality, however it might excite the applause of the people, has incurred the censure of posterity. A nation of legislators and conquerors might assert their claim to the harvests of Africa, which had been purchased with their blood. And it was artfully contrived by Augustus that, in the enjoyment of plenty, the Romans should lose the memory of freedom. But the prodigality of Constantine could not be excused by any consideration either of public or private interest. And the annual tribute of corn imposed upon Egypt for the benefit of his new capital was applied to feed a lazy and insolent populace at the expense of the husbandmen of an industrious province. Some other regulations of this emperor are less liable to blame, but they are less deserving of notice. He divided Constantinople into fourteen regions or quarters, dignified the public council with the appellation of Senate, communicated to the citizens the privileges of Italy, and bestowed on the rising city the title of Colony, the first and most favored daughter of ancient Rome. The venerable parent still maintained the legal and acknowledged supremacy, which was due to her age, to her dignity, and to the remembrance of her former greatness. As Constantine urged the progress of the work with the impatience of a lover, the walls, the porticos, and the principal edifices were completed in a few years or, according to another account, in a few months. But this extraordinary diligence should excite the less admiration, since many of the buildings were finished in so hasty and imperfect a manner that, under the succeeding reign, they were preserved with difficulty from impeding ruin. But while they displayed the vigor and freshness of youth, the founder, prepared to celebrate the dedication of his city. The games and largesses which crowned the pomp of this memorable festival may easily be supposed. But there is one circumstance of a more singular and permanent nature, which ought not entirely to be overlooked. As often as the birthday of the city returned, the statue of Constantine framed by his order of gilt wood, and bearing in its right hand a small image of the genius of the place, was erected on a triumphal car. 
the guards, carrying white tapers and clothed in their richest apparel, accompanied the solemn procession as it moved through the hippodrome. When it was opposite to the throne of the reigning emperor, he rose from his seat and with grateful reverence adored the memory of his predecessor. At the festival of the dedication, an edict, engraved on a column of marble, bestowed the title of Second or New Rome on the city of Constantine. But the name of Constantinople has prevailed over that honorable epithet. And after the revolution of fourteen centuries, still perpetuates the fame of its author. End of section thirty three.